0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Critical Theory, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Louisa Hahn, your host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Bogdan Popa about his new book, Decentering Queer Theory Communist Sexuality in the Flow During and After the Cold War, which was recently published by Manchester University Press. This book, I think, represents a fascinating genealogical critique of some of the queer theory's foundational orthodoxies, while considering how we might entwine Eastern Marxist forms of thinking with contemporary queer liberation movements, it will be a really engaging read for those interested in queer theory, Marxism, and political economy. Um, and I'm sure readers will find plenty to both argue with and to challenge some of their assumptions about queerness today. So just to introduce Bogdan, Bogdan is an intellectual historian specialising in the history of ideas in 19th and 20th century Europe with research interests including historical transformation of sexuality and gender, histories of Marxism in Eastern Europe, and the intersection between film studies and political theory. Bogdan has taught at Oberlin College, University of Cambridge, University of Indiana, and the University of Bucharest. Bogdan, welcome, and many thanks for taking the time to join us today.
0: Yes, thank you for this discussion, Louisa. I'm glad to have this opportunity to process what I've been working in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So,
1: to start us off, could you give listeners a quick overview of your research background and and how you came to write the book?
0: Okay. Um, Well, I was trained initially as a political theorist in Romania. And uh, like most people of my generation, um, we were deeply shaped by the experience of losing the Cold War um, in my mid-twenties, uh, I worked on questions of justice and critical theory, but uh, then I moved to the United States. And during my graduate studies, I read Foucault and a lot of queer thinking about the transformations of sexuality. My research shifted um, uh, to how to think about sexuality in its historical content. And I wanted to think specifically about affects, because there was a strong push around, I think, 2012, 2013, to believe that visceral reactions have a specific kind of power to shape politics. So that's why I wrote my first book about shame and shame-related acts uh, uh, and focused on various groups of 19th century feminists and free lovers in England and, uh, in, in, the U- and, the, uh, and in the U.S. While teaching in the U.S., I, um, I began to consider not only the question of sexuality in Anglo-America, but how it functioned in Eastern Europe and particularly in Soviet Marxism. What changed is that I became part of an of intellectual debates in Romania and I've noticed that some of the main conflicts with my friends um, were around Marxism, sexuality, and whether queer activism um, is leftist or not. At the same time, I was involved with radical academics in the U.S., concentrated around the Abolition Journal. And these people wanted to think about the abolition of prisons, police, and gender as deeply connected issues. So, out of this conversation around 2017, when I started to write this book, I realized two things. First, it was clear to me that the historical introduction of liberal feminism and LGBT question in Eastern Europe, started with the 1990s, produced, rather than undermine, a repudiation of the socialist past of the country, and then and the new body of ideas was aligned with the formation of a mainstream anti-communist program second um i felt that um was a lot of energy in anarchist radical groups that drew the resources from uh, the new left and queer theory and that energy was also concentrated around deploying rather than criticizing the term gender in its correlates, such as queer or trans. At the same time, after the you know, the economic crisis of 2008, the election of Trump, there was a shift in queer thinking from critiques of Western nationalism, such as uh, Puar's critique of homo nationalism, to a more engaged com- conversation with Marxism as, for instance, in Rahul Rao's critique of homo-capitalism, So, after, again, I'm trying to think a little bit like a historian, after Bernie Sanders and Corbyn and the realization that capitalism delivers, if it does, only to a small percent of the bourgeoisie, an entire theoretical shift in queer studies was deeply engaged with a Marxist language uh, and uh, vocabulary drawn primarily from Althusser, about social formations, ideology, critiques of ideology. So this is why I thought that Marxism in Eastern Europe uh, can be involved in this conversation, but in a sort of a in, in the shape of a different historical tradition, such as the Marxist-Leninist body of thinking, which is you know considered more or less dated authoritarian and sometimes Stalinist. And I wanted to tell a different story, about how the Cold War was fundamental to the rise of queer theory, and how concepts in queer theory, such as gender and queer, emerged because of the repudiation of Marxist-Leninism. So the you know the problem for many of us in Eastern Europe is that you know the current attack on gender studies uh, is made through association. Because the right wing calls uh, queer and abolitionist ideas sexo-Marxism. That's that's the term that they use, right? Um, to respond to these critics, um, LGBT and queer artists and theorists tend to embrace anti-communism but my effort was to argue that such orientation erases an entire history of struggles in Eastern Europe. So I, you know, (laughs) to conclude, I I just wanted to offer not only a sort of a historical argument about the the erasure of Eastern European Marxism, but also I wanted to introduce a dialectical method in queer studies. Right, yeah, that's
1: really interesting that you talk about the uh, sort of the move towards more Marxist thinking in queer theory, because it's something that I've noticed, particularly say the publication of uh, Transgender Marxism, for example, which I think is mm-hmm. a interesting edited collection. But certainly, yeah, this Eastern Marxism um, paradigm hasn't been introduced in the way I think that it has in your book. So let's move on to the um, the the book itself. Um, so in Part One, you set out the terms of your intervention, um, you know, within the, the the field of queer theory, which I think we'll provide an interesting and um, quite conceptually challenging overview for readers interested in in learning about Soviet ideas of um, kind of the the productive body that constructs a a Soviet subject and how this sort of grates against Western liberal epistemology surrounding individualism and a quite delimited notion of sexual freedom. Um, One of the ideologies that you claim was weaponized against Soviet articulations of emancipation and uh, by extension, sexual freedom is something that you term cold war gender. So could you give listeners um, an overview of what you mean by cold war gender, um, which represents quite a key analytic of the book and how you believe this lays the foundations of um, sort of how we understand queerness today?
0: Okay. So to get to what I call the cold war gender, allow me to describe a little bit the emergence of um, of what I also call the productive body. This productive Soviet body produced by Soviet theorists after the October Revolution, who embraced a Marxist approach to reality and matter, uh, which is at odds with a with this later epistemology of bodies that we know as the social construction of bodies. So, um, in my book, I draw on Soviet thinkers like um, um, uh, like Alexander uh, Bogdanov. And Boris Arvatov to identify an epistemological model of a socialist body that was supposed to better feel and act than its than its capitalist counterparts, and uh, I focused on two main traits of this body, and um, deployed. Soviet films to show how they functioned in cinematography. So I wanted to show that unlike the bodies that were later associated with with the ideas of individuality and freedom, Soviet bodies were devices that were imagined as producers of communism and not merely as social constructions of reality. So the difference lies here in the attitude towards matter and and, uh, reality because they were not representations these bodies were not supposed to represent a capitalist world but they produced a new communist society and they were also um the second important um feature of these bodies is that there were Dialectical devices, they were not individualist elements of, uh, let's say, of a film's plot. They were part of a dialectical relationship with other characters, and they were together producing a new world, right? The classical example that I talk about in my book is the 1934 film Chapaev, um, the Soviet film, where the focus is on a relationship between the party activist and the Red Army commander. We have a tense but also productive relationship. Now, to get to the Cold War gender, um, I basically started to think about the, the emergence of, of this Cold War gender um, in the work of, um, of the US uh, psychologist John Money, who coined the term gender and how his ideas embraced a lot of the Cold War assumptions. Um, about Marxism. So I traced Mani's ideas to social constructivism, or constructionism, how they calling themselves, an epistemological orientation in social sciences that emerged in the 50s and then became important in the 70s, particularly for feminists, right, as a sort of alternative model of understanding human reality. So for liberal feminists, bodies were constructs of human reality. And this model, was elaborated at the end of the 1950s by social constructionists, and I give an example. Um, I talk about uh, Peter Berger and Thomas Lukman's book uh, in the 60s, The Social Construction of Reality. And these scholars saw themselves as critics of Marxist-Leninism. But in their critique of of Marxist-Leninism, they removed any understanding that social sciences can create revolutionary agents that can change the world. So, um, basically I named Cold War Gender, the particular idea that people's bodies can be a device of, of, a, of the active of fulfillment of their inner self, if they're willing to construct themselves as free individuals. It was a particular mode of understanding bodies that challenged the rival communist program that emphasized the collective and uh, dialectical um understanding of bodies. In the end this is actually the this, this is the victorious version of bodies that is kind of at the heart of liberal capitalist societies, right? But it, it it emerged under conditions of of the Cold War conflict between two rival ideologies. Now this idea that gender is a product of the Cold War is not new. Um, Jemima Repo showed that the birth of gender uh, was in her um, critique, a weapon of biopolitics to instill values related to family and gendered ideas about bodies um, after the Second World War. Um, another key scholar, another trans key scholar, uh, Susan Stryker, locates the birth of the transgender in a capitalist and colonial context. And uh, I love her piece on christine Jorgensen, um, was basically the first world-famous tra- transgender person who became part of a colonial discipline that was imposed by the US in the Philippines. <clears throat> so, while I use their arguments in my book, my contribution is to analyze um, the epistemology of gender and to show its anti-communist origins. Um, and uh, later in in the book i tried to show that this cold war gender was a model and an epistemology that was criticized by queer theorists uh, such as uh, such as judith butler at the end of the 1980s great um so
1: just to kind of circle back to um sort of the beginning of part one when you touch on um soviet histories um surrounding sex gender and family that i think will surprise listeners introduced to queer theory via western scholars like but- butler and harper stamp etc so i'm thinking here of uh, the stuff about sex education programs and legal abortion which for various reasons are sort of elided in um how we kind of learn about uh queerness and queer histories today so would it be possible just to just historicize this for listeners a little bit and it just just to expand um on the kinds of misconceptions or the historical elisions that you're trying to address at least in part in this book
0: yeah so um the early Soviet history uh, and the um, history of uh, Eastern European socialist regimes after the Second World War is less known in terms of um, things such as sexuality uh, or bodies but you know it's it's worth remembering (laughs) that the Soviet Union was the first um, uh, was the first state that actually um, uh, introduced uh, pro-abortion politics after the 1920s. And they also, um, uh, they removed sodomy as a uh, criminal offense from from their penal code. Things have changed uh, during Stalinism. Um, But another part that people don't know very well is that, you know, um, in Romania, there's a lot of talk about... um, Um, about uh, the policy of Ceaușescu's regime with regard to abortions, right? So uh, after 1966, uh, a particular kind of abortions were uh, banned in uh, the socialist country. But people do not remember very well that actually between uh, um, the end of the 1950s and 1966, Uh, The country had an actual um, uh, had a had a policy that was uh, open to to abortions. So that part of history is generally excised when it comes to thinking about you know the politics of the socialist regimes. Now, uh, of course, we can talk a, a lot about how. How these, um, how the socialist countries were dealing with the question of sexuality, but I want to focus a little bit on on um, how what I on how I describe in my book how this Cold War model of gender um, and a queer model of post-identitarian politics. I think it's still working with. Um, and epistemology that is primarily individualistic and uh, non-dialectical, right? So, to give you an example, um, even if queer theories such as Judith Butler, let's say, reject the social constructivism of the Cold War, um, many, um, many queer thinkers work with an apparatus that builds on the idea of sexual freedom and liberation from the constraints of um, a hegemonic culture. So those assumptions are deeply ingrained in a queer theory um, attempt to criticize a previous model of gender, uh, but they're still part of how they think about the role of um, of sexuality and freedom. So in my book, um, I used a little bit of what. Um, uh, Kerry Chukrov, um, a, a, a scholar, a very uh, interesting scholar of, uh, among others, of Soviet Marxism, how Soviet Marxism proposed a type of human emancipation that was not the product of a subversive culture, but embodying a communist norm, which was promoted by a relation, sort of a dialectical relation between the state and society, and was at odds with a more anarchist view of sexuality right so it was explicitly focused on fulfilling people's needs through change um an economic mode of social production which was addressed to all and sought to guide them to a model of human emancipation now there are queer theorists not uh, you know not all queer theorists are just mother of course but there are queer theorists some that i discuss in the book uh, such as Roderick, uh, such as Roderick Ferguson, Jose Esteban Munoz, uh, and Fred Moten, and they work with Marxist assumptions in their commentaries uh, and ideas. And I wanted primarily to get in a conversation with their texts because I didn't see, um, I didn't see the role of dialectics of. Um, Changing a mode of production, you know, as prominent as I um, as I wanted to in uh, in um, in their texts. So that's why I I tried a little bit to uh, to combine a sort of a, what what is considered an older model of Soviet Marxism uh, with newer Marxist queer Marxist ideas uh, uh, about uh, about sexuality. And, um, basically in the second part of the book, I, I, you know, to just give you a short, short outline, I described how Soviet Marxism was a product, was also a product of, of, uh, of abolishing capitalist norms, including norms about the capitalist, uh, pre- uh presentations of bodies and sexuality. I also show that, um. A Marxist orientation can emphasize the legacy of um, um, of material changes in Eastern Europe. There is a lot of talk these days, you know, but, but what what is what is matter, right? <laughs> but I think that with you know uh, with this older forms of Marxism, um, you get what what was at the heart of um, of their project, which. Um, you know, uh, which was to, to, to build a society that works for all. And, uh, you know, in Eastern Europe today, like one of the barriers that, that we face, and, 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 and you in, uh, in, uh, in the UK as well, is the sort of a, uh, continuous rise in economic equality, which is driven by rents. And um, here, a lot of socialist families were actually um, uh, owners of their apartments and that particular kind of uh, ownership served as a sort of an important obstacle to debt and poverty so I touch a little bit on this in my book and uh, I was also interested in trying to like think about the unconscious in a different way because I thought that this cold war ideology that what 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 i describe as a cold War ideology actually shaped how we think about the unconscious you know pr- productions such as dreams or erotic fantasies but in you know you know in a lot of these texts you know in, a, in a, um in a lot of queer theory you get a sense of a divorce you know uh from um from their historical and social n- nature right when you know to give you an example when when um when Freud comes as um, as a, as a thinker that people want to go to, and then they talk about the, the drives, right, um, uh, the the erotic drive or or, or the, the drive towards death, these drives are seen mostly as something that are so, uh, as something that is natural, uh, completely divorced from like historical changes. So I want to think them a little bit more. Um, in relation to that. Did that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, And that's kind of interesting in terms of like talking about that naturalization of something and linking it back again to um, chapter three, where you go into, you've already mentioned this, but um, the like Cold War, psychologism and sexology kind of scientific view of things, Mm -hmm. specifically, you know, John Money and Eric Erickson. Um, I think would it be possible just to just to talk a little bit more about their ideas and about how these approaches to gender contributed to like the anti communist scare? I, I kind of want to expand on uh, maybe a little bit beyond the book in terms of um, your discussion. Like your discussion of these um, two figures kind of links up, I think, to experiences of of trans people forced to navigate. You know, for example, in the UK, the bureaucracy of gender identity clinics, which I mean to my knowledge at least require people to prove this sort of natural gender through you know Mm -hmm. endless assessments supposedly designed to ascertain whether people are you know truly the gender they say they are and this obviously feeds into like um uh into kind of essentialist notions of gender that delimit possibilities of thinking beyond traditional gendered roles and 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 capitalism really so to ultimately kind of restrict the lives of trans and 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 non-binary people
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah, I think the 1950s, I, um, I was trying to see a little bit in the 1950s how, um, uh, how gender emerged on the scene and to understand how what was called sex, let's say, before the Second World War became, you know, gender gradually became gender. So in, when, when, when gender emerged in the, in the 1950s, it was directly connected to the idea of identity um which represented in the argument of a cultural critic that I use a lot in my book um by the name of Lerom Medovoy um this this idea of identity was a, a dominant mode of representing to op- uh, the opposition to Soviet communism how come <laughs> well in uh, in the 1950s uh, in the U.S., uh, I'm talking about the U.S. here, primarily. In the 1950s, um, passing and deviancy were important devices to generate uh, the Red Scare. Communists uh, and anarchists uh, and homosexuals were considered to be uh, the main threats to society. And um, the, the mission of, of free people in the United States Um was to discover in, you know, in contrast with, with, um, with these people that wanted to hide their identities they, they had to discover their real identities, right? If you remember, the, the, there's this uh, famous Turing experiment, um, which became this sort of inaugural moment of the computer age, right? The, the, <clears throat> the interrogator in the Turing experiment is given the mission to discover the sex of the people that he cannot see and, and and this is this is also, again a, a question that is at the heart of Blade Runner. You know, are you a man or a machine? Uh, <clears throat> and that's sort of a question, like trying to figure out who is behind uh, a face, the, the, this question of, of, of um, trying to find an identity, um, emerge with this sort of a cultural obsession uh, with common with with communism. Now. Um, psychologist the psychologist, uh, uh, the, uh, the psychologist uh, I'm talking about uh, Eric, uh, Erickson with his idea of uh, identity in childhood and society um, identified the uh, the achieving of identity as the primary goal of the self so the main attraction of this model was to um, was that it represented a contestation and of conformism and uh, suburbia in the 1950s. And it did so by speaking to a new generation that rebelled against its families. So (laughs) identity actually appeared a little bit like how trans is for a lot of us today was sort of a response. But in the 1950s, it was a response to the Red Scare and suburban capitalism and became a sort of a main term of rebellion in in, um, US culture. Uh, the story of the first, again, to go back to Christina Jorgensen, the sort of first, uh, the story of um, of the first transgender person, uh, was deployed as an argument against the narrow-mindedness of the Soviets and used by uh, the U.S. propaganda to show that free people can change their identity. Um, John Money, he worked <coughs> in this sort of a similar tradition where gender became, for him, um, a tool for correcting behaviors and enforcing norms about what counts as a proper white, manly, and uh, American body presentation. Um, John Money was not uh, was was not a fascist. He was a you know he was a liberal scientist, but uh, his understanding of uh, of gender, like what what is the payoff of of of, of uh, using uh, gender as an analytical category, um, became for him a sort of a tool to think about how gender can liberate many sexual deviances that were associated uh, to to transgender uh, bodies, right? So um, what, I, what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that um, a lot of these people, you know, people like Erickson and, and Money, where liberal thinkers were trying to work out a particular kind of ideology that had some liberatory implications but in a particular kind of context in a contest you know in a contest dominated by the idea of um, individual freedom and the fulfillment of oneself so the the um, the 1950s was also the moment that placed sexual identity along race and gender as key traits to identify a person, right? That, that, was, that was a sort of a critical moment where, where, where these traits uh, became statist- statistically and theoretically uh, moments that define a person's identity. Um, but they did so uh, not by just medicalizing people's bodies, right? But they did so also by kind of creating this fantasy of a sovereign and independent territory, which became the gendered body. So our bodies became that sort of a territory. I'm also talking about uh, a period of time um, where decolonization of uh, African states was happening. So there was a particular kind of fantasy about how people in the West can achieve a, a sort of a decolonization of their bodies uh, by going back to their gender and their bodies became gendered bodies, right? So, um, in my book I I, I, I try to explain um, uh, extensively how how Mani's use of the term gender produced the inferiority of black and Asian bodies um, but again, uh, I want to insist on this point. Um, his epistemology advanced a sort of a progressive ideas about how bodies can be liberated from from uh, from constraining social norms.
1: Mm. So yeah, this links into I think I'll sort of skip over to the final chapter just for now because this sort of links up to the um, your discussion between anti-trans politics and anti-com- anti-communism, and um, sort of building coalitions, I suppose, between sort of subaltern subjects, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, could you sort of talk about um, why you chose specifically the film *Tangerine* to um, to analyse? Because I think it's it's probably of all the films that you. Um, Used to sort of expand on your theories, I think this is one of the ones that haplessers will have engaged with at some point, and you know this will kind of give them a different kind of view on the on the uh, on the film.
0: Yeah, tangerine. Um, so um, with with uh, with tangerine, I, I, I was trying to do a sort of a similar work uh, that I've done in uh, previous chapters. I wanted to show that. The, the, the idea of um, of gendered bodied and trans issues today uh, is not completely new but it is uh, because it is strongly connected to um, the Cold War right so before talking about Tangerine I I was interested in showing how in the 1950s you know there's an entire genre of, of, uh, of uh, US uh, movies where um, in this films, um, you see aliens um, who uh, were attacking uh, people in the U.S. And these figures, these sort of figures, um, were pointing to the the threats that people were experiencing at the time. Uh, you know, communist or uh, uh, trans people how how they how they were uh, uh, seen in uh, in. The mainstream at the time, right? So there, there were different words that people used at the time, such as uh, such as transsexual or hermaphrodite, um, and those bodies were generally considered uh, as threats. So in this genre of movies, the aliens are um, are taking over society, uh, and generally there is a sort of a liberal scientist. who can save uh, the world uh, from from aliens but in 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 looking at Tangerine I wanted to see a little bit like what change in terms of the the sort of a fear of of uh, alien trans bodies right and I wanted to see how what one of the main characters in Tangerine um, the drug dealer uh, how he how is actually a part of this sort of anti-communist tradition and how he exploits to trans workers and for me what was striking is that he's he uses the same what 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 the director is giving us is, is that um, the drug dealer is kind of using the same methods of breaking strike of of of, of breaking strikes um, that the 1950s have showed us in u.s propaganda film so let's say you know uh, if uh, if you're looking at uh, one of these, and, and I'm looking in my book at one of these films, you see that um, the aliens were um, uh, were united in actually uh, trying to corrupt the um, U.S. citizens, and then the liberal scientist, what what um, what he does is to create a sort of a diversion within. Within this front, so sometimes an alien or someone who or someone who lives in this sort of a liberal U.S. world, they um, they become uh, 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 they become disconnected from 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 this world of uh, of. Uh, uh, of aliens, so there is a sort of a of a of a method of actually breaking a sort of a, a line of unity that, that that happens in this movie. So that's what I wanted to see a little bit in in uh, Tangerine because um, as you remember, there are two trans characters there, and there there is also a um, uh, an immigrant, a driver who's very attracted to one of the uh, trans characters in the film. And the, um, the drug dealer, he's, all, he's, he's always interested in actually creating a sort of a um, break within, within, with, within a group of people that might oppose him. So I wanted to see this sort of a shift from how... Did the liberal scientists do it in the 50s? And the new entrepreneur, you know, the, this uh, this figure of of um, of neoliberals, how they actually break the solidarity of trans and immigrant drivers, um, in um, in the film. Well, that's why I, you know, I guess. Uh, uh, in my chapter, I think I, the, the, there is sort of a suggestion where I say that I, I want to see more films in which African-American characters or trans characters are showed in alliance with other sections of the working class or intellectual uh, proletarians or other categories. So we move towards uh, uh, an, an emphasis on alliances, right, rather than... Um, rather than just showing, let's say, a particular category of people fighting against, let's say, uh, a capitalist uh, uh, a capitalist who exploits the others.
1: Hmm. Yeah, um, I think that's an interesting point about sort of these building solidarities and sort of your book trying to get through certain kind of impasses, um, particularly in sort of around the fourth chapter where you spend some time with queer scholars who've incorporated like the Marxist analytic in their work um like John D'Amelio and Gail Rubin uh for example which mm-hmm. um perhaps their kind of work doesn't necessarily address this in a way I mean in a way that your book kind of tries to explain so um I just want to kind of engage with Mario Miele's Towards a Gay Communism here, which um, is a 1970s text that I think has largely been historically overlooked in queer studies, in part due to, you know, the dominance of this kind of uh, Foucauldian, Butlerian conceptualizations of power bodies and the social, etc. I think recently, though, like the materialist queer left has started to pay more attention to Miele and and. A full uh, uh, translation was recently published in English, I think, by Pluto Press. So, um, could you give a brief introduction to um, his work for listeners and explain the value of the work for contemporary socialist left, but also um, where its limitations lie? In other words, how this kind of dialectical elements of Soviet Marxism can help to, um, let's say, refine a gay communism, as it were. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, I, I. Uh... I was also interested in, in this um, move towards uh, Marco Miele's work, right? Because he's generally seen as a sort of a pre, uh, pre-Gayle Rubin, pre-Judith Butler, pre-1980s uh, queer ideas. And I, I I was just interested to see how he wants to do this sort of a mix, the the mix um of thinking together Marxism and queer ideas. So in the book, I, I introduced uh, I introduced Marcos Mielli's ideas in conjunction with uh, what I called a, a rise of a political formation in the 1970s, um, which emphasized um, sexuality and freedom as ideals to undermine socialist states, right? So I I wanted to put that a little bit in contrast with Mieli. So while I show that in Eastern European art um, and films, uh, um, while Eastern European art and films draw closer to a Western critique of communism, Mieli and his uh, 1977 book, Gay Communism, uh, brings in a sort of a reverse desire for communism, Uh, a member in the Gay Liberation Front and the radical Italian activist. Uh, He believed that communism can lead to the destruction of capitalism Um, and he, like John Money, who used the term gender identity to mark the transition of a body from one sex category to another. But what I, what I find um, fascinating in his work is that he introduced this other category, transsexuality, which is different uh, from what we today understand by gender. Because uh, for him, transsexuality represents um, a psychic potential that all have for erotic communism. So what he's telling us is that this sort of a queer communism is open to all, and that's, that's a, a key idea. From um, uh, not only from Mieli, but from I guess from the this this 1970s uh, uh, alliance between communists and gay liberation people. So um, I saw him as in 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 my book. I saw him as a sort of an important transition point to, um, uh, to contemporary theory because he insists not only on the possibility of um, individual psychic liberation, but uh, of a total change in the system of production. So in this aspect, there is an important part that is, uh, that is Marxist in his thinking. Yet, um, in my book, I also wanted to criticize how what kind of a model merely offers offer us, because there is a, a strong individual, and I think non-dialectical view of sexuality um, for him. So f- um, in his view, transsexuals are individuals um, that, that can liberate themselves, right, by their non-normative deviant practices. But to contrast it, to contrast um, his ideas, um, with Soviet Marxism or Eastern European Marxism, these people insisted on transformation of bodies when when they labor with other to achieve a different mode of production. Um, in other words, for um, for Soviet Marxists, no queer practice in itself can create changes if it's if it's not ta- if it's not attached to a sort of a collective change of. Uh, um of our conditions uh, of living so and a dialectical change of, of these conditions of of living
1: yeah so i think we'll just move on to the second part of the book now just um just slightly running short of time which because it seeks to connect sort of these different types of abolitionist theories together to come, you know, particularly along anti-racist lines. Um, because I was quite struck by your discussion of Munoz here, um, who I think lots of scholars of queer theory, for example, are probably quite familiar with and whose sort of and deployment of um, utopian Marxism might seem to grate against some of the more precise or prescriptive orthodoxies of you know, often associated with sort of of Eastern Marxist formulations. So could you talk about why you chose to focus on Munoz to develop your kind of um, marriage of Marxist politics and queer thinking? Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, um, Munoz Munoz is important to me uh, because, you know, I was in grad school when um, a lot of the debates in queer theory were... Happening and um, particularly the debate between the um, uh, anti-social, negative uh, uh, queer theorists and um, people who embraced uh, queer uh, queer utopian thinking. Right, so there were, they, they seem there there seems to be um, um, the the they seem to be a, a huge divide at the time. And I think at that time I I also I guess I was on the side a little bit more of the of the anti-social thesis, you know, the idea that basically uh, what 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 is important is to um, is to create a particular kind of a, um, a event or change in uh, in how the sociality functions through negative emotions or through negative ideas or whatever. So, um, later I, I, I think I started to think differently and I, I, I liked, uh, much more, uh, his, uh, use of, um, of Ernst Bloch and of uh, C. L. R. James. And, um, particularly when it comes to, uh, Ernst Bloch, who was also, uh, I think he was historically in a position where he wanted to introduce a particular kind of sensuality, affectivity into Marxism. And he talked a lot about hope as a, as a definite affect of, um, of, of Marxism. So with Munoz, he took this, this, this uh, what, what Bloch calls the anticipatory illumination of the not-yet-conscience. He took that idea... And he put it at the heart of queer theory, and I thought that that move was uh, was actually very important in this in this um, uh, attempt to create a different kind, of Marxist kind of queer theory, and also Bloch um, took from uh, from James, who also went through his different periods. Of, uh, a communist a sort of ortho communist at the beginning and uh, and a Trotsky later uh, and Munoz took this sort of a workers dimension um, from um, from Marxism and this this dimension um, uh, uh, which is let's say, encapsulated by the idea that the future is contained in the practice of workers. And uh, for Munoz, um, queer um, became important because it became uh, uh, encapsulated in the struggles of of queers of color who want to imagine a a different future for for, for all. So I like this mix of of Marxism and queer thinking, in particular in formulations such as the queer counter fetish when Munoz talks uh, about the performances of a black queer artist such as um, Kevin Avianz. He's um, he's talking about how by embodying a different kind of materiality uh, and a different kind of um, uh, clothing, that sort of a performance kind of eluc- uh, uh, elucidates the the um, the material conditions of uh, um, of um, of our desires. So I I like a lot the, the, this idea of a, of a queer counter fetish, right? A performance that is anti-capitalist. But what I wanted to add to this is sort of a different dimension, which is that this his- that the historical socialists thought not only about a critique of the, of um, of alienation as a lot of people in western marxism thought about right uh trying to criticize and to to uh, show how people are alienated in um in their um in their current situation but with um um with Marxist Leninist or, or with or with Eastern European Marxists. They they wanted to think about how to overcome this alienation by creating a different economy that would that would um speak to people's needs. So that's why I was I was uh that interested in Munoz. Yeah. That's really interesting. And um we've been going
1: for a while now and I don't want to keep you for too long. Um, so thank you so much for all of your like really expansive answers and really, um, uh, interesting, um, insights. So finally, just, uh, what are you working on at the moment?
0: Yeah. So, um, what I'm doing, uh, at least I am, um, after, after, after this book, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, um, uh, think more generally in what forms I can bring Marxist ideas in, a. In a very, you a strong like anti-communist academic setting in Romania, right? So um, uh, I'm in I'm in the sort of a stage the, the first stages of thinking about a project where I'm thinking about how various U, U.S. theories travel and become indigenized in um, in Eastern Europe, and um, I. Um, I wrote a piece about um, uh, this new activist, this new queer activism on on local groups. And um, these people are very interesting uh, and they deploy um, terms such as Kutra uh, in Romania or Zboki in Ukraine. And they deploy to these, these, these terms to talk about a sort of a Indigenized queerness, and what I wanted to look at is how I see some limits. Again, based on my sort of a critique uh, coming from um, from uh, Eastern European Marxism. I'm i trying to see some of the limits of this uh, indigenous queer model. Um, also, I'm 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 interested in um, in debates. Uh, that were happening uh, historically in Romania in uh the 1970s about world system theory a uh, very marxist uh, idea about global processes right and i'm i'm i'm, I'm trying to reintroduce this historical debates um, into into current academic com- conversations here that's that's the project
1: Great. Right, well, it sounds really exciting. Um, look forward to seeing the results. So, well, that's about all we have time for today. Um, many thanks again for speaking with me about your work. Um, I had a really good time and I'm sure the listeners have too. Take care.